So uh, why don't you guys go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the New Testament, Mark chapter 1. Uh, Mark chapter 1. I know you, you've had some really good speakers come in over the last few weeks. And I was listening yesterday to y- Yolanda Fields, who was here last uh, Sunday. She was outstanding. If you missed that, I encourage you to go online and invest about 28 minutes and listen to what Yolanda has to say. I mean, uh, she was very inspiring. So I know you've had some great speakers. Now you're stuck with me for a while. Hopefully that's going to be okay. Um, also, you notice we're all wearing these t-shirts because we're, we're promoting uh, our life group uh, a push that starts really next week because we're starting a new series called Seeking to Know. And it's all about exploring the whole idea of God, knowing God's will. Can we know it? How do we know it? What do we do with it when we find out if we can't? You know, the whole idea of, of understanding the will of God. And, uh, and what we want to do is we want to get as many people as we can in the church into, into life groups uh, for the six weeks that we're doing that, that study. That way we can do some stuff together on Sunday mornings, and then the groups during the week can follow up uh, on more material. And I think it's going to be a really great experience. And so uh, we're, we're, uh, tonight at, the, at the, um, the block party, we have, a, we have an event, a connecting event. If you're not in a life group yet, we have over 20 leaders that are going to be there. You can go and talk to and find out where they live and, where they, you know, and all these things so we can get you connected. And so we're wearing these T-shirts just to... to to promote it. One of the reasons we feel, you know, so um, strong about getting people into um, life groups, uh, well, some of it has to do with a recent study that was done by sociologists at Duke University and University of Arizona. It's just published by the American Sociological Review. Uh, and apparently it is now, um, now one in four Americans claim that they have, they have no one they can talk to about life, about their troubles, their, 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 their trials, their triumphs, no one. And if you take family out of the equation, the number doubles. So now over 50% of Americans say they have no one with whom they can share confidences with, share life with. And sadly, researchers note that this social isolation is on the increase In their book, The Lonely American, doctors Jacqueline Olds and Richard Schwartz explain the grim reality of social isolation and how being disconnected diminishes happiness, health, longevity. It increases aggression, correlates with increasing rates of violent crime. They stress uh, that loneliness doesn't apply simply to single people. Today's busy parents cocoon themselves by devoting most of their non-work hours to children leaving little time for friends and other forms of social contact, unhealthily relying on the marriage to fulfill all their social needs. And the conclusion is basically this. They say loneliness appears to be the inevitable byproduct of our frenetic contemporary lifestyle. In other words, suburbanization, affluence, entertainment, busyness, financial pressure, time crunches, technology, all together have created a nation of isolated tribes of individuals. That's how they're referring, the experts are referring to us. And, and, you know, we've been on this path for quite some time. Um, Over 100 years ago, writers from Tocqueville to sociologist Emily Durkheim, from Karl Marx to Edmund Burke, all predicted uh, the decay of of our social fabric. Uh, They talked about what they called the hell of loneliness. And here we are. And our contemporary American predicament is basically we all live in close proximity to one another, but we're not necessarily connected. And it's become increasingly obvious that this sociological path of individualism uh, leads to isolation, emptiness, and disappointment. And as people become more and more aware of that, more and more aware 
uh, of the, the limitations of individualistic thinking and the downside of disengaging, uh, dif- disengagement from family and from friends, from neighbors. They hunger for alternatives. They yearn for something beyond themselves. They long to connect. Well, Christianity is all about that. It's all about what people are yearning for, connection. From a biblical perspective, the idea of community refers to deep relational connection, commitment, and the sharing of a common purpose, all critical to spiritual life. English poet and playwright T.S. Eliot once said, what life have you if you have not life together? There is no life that's not in community, and no community not lived in praise to God. Here's my Reiki summary. As human beings, we are created for meaningful, you know, true community, meaningful relationships. As Christians, we're called to it. I mean, think of the word church. Literally, that word means called out ones. It's a collective term. And this whole church, this whole community idea uh, started with Jesus. As he began his ministry, Mark tells us in chapter 1, uh, verse 14, that Jesus went out proclaiming the good news of God's love and grace. Mark says, as he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Uh, A few weeks ago, I went fishing in, in, in Canada, in Upper Manitoba. And uh, whenever I tell people about it, the first question is, did you catch a lot of fish? And the answer is yes. And then uh, the next question is, did you catch any big ones? And the answer is yes. But everybody's like my wife, she wants proof of the catch. So here's proof of the big one, uh, one of the big ones. That is, uh, in case you're wondering, that is a 41 inch, who's counting? 41 inch uh, Northern Pike, it is a trophy catch. Uh, with a certificate and everything. I put it on the refrigerator. You think I'm in second grade, but uh, you know, it's there. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of fun. And uh, um, uh, I caught that, by the way, in pouring rain and 40 mile per hour winds. And it was still fun. So we had a blast. But I tell you what, the best part of the trip for me wasn't being away. It wasn't the beauty of Upper Manitoba. It wasn't just catching fish. That was fun. But honestly, the best part of the trip was that my son Corey was with me. And that's, he's the handsome one on the left, in case you were wondering. It was an adventure. It was a journey that we did together, and we jo- enjoyed every, every minute of it. And not only that, we did it with friends. Seven of us shared that life experience for about six days straight. Fishing, having fun, talking. It was a great, great time. Well, in the passage we just read... Mark records the day when Jesus began a journey that would take him to the cross. And the first thing that he does is he finds, he finds someone to do the journey with. To a handful of just ordinary guys, Jesus says, let's do a trip together. And he didn't have to do that. I mean, Jesus was capable of making the trip by himself. It's not like he needed someone to help him teach better or assist him in miracles. But it's, a, it's important we understand for Jesus, establishing a community was part of his plan for impacting the world. Because three years after this, following his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, ascension, Jesus didn't leave behind uh, a financial endowment for his movement. He didn't leave behind detailed instruction, uh, instructions or detailed infrastructure, no building, no political um, 
clout, no, no networking of professionals, none of the things that we consider uh, pivotal to a, su- a successful organization. Instead, Jesus left behind a small group of followers. That's it. 11 guys and about 110 of his closest friends, men and women. And he told them to go out into the world and make a difference. And 2,000 years later, here we are, because of what God did through that group of people, which explains why Jesus took community so seriously. I mean, tell me, how often did Jesus go up to somebody and say, hey, I want you to know and experience the love of God. I want you to follow me. I realize you're busy. I get that. I know you don't have time to be in a small group or anything like that. Plus, some of our disciples can just be a pain. Peter talks a lot. Thomas is a skeptic. You know, Philip is, well, he's kind of boring. Uh, Judas, don't even get me started about that guy, you know. They're all a little weird, ordinary at best. So you follow me separate from the group. Skip the community deal. Read the notes. Make the lectures. Do the self-guided study plan. How often did Jesus offer that? Never. Never. From the get-go, Jesus established as a new kind of community, and he taught and he modeled uh, what life was to be like in that community every day. In fact, uh, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed for unity among the group, implying that the journey they were on required togetherness. His final words to his friends was, you know, go into the world together. Share this good news of God's love and grace. Teach, baptize, and he says, I'll always be with you, you, plural, So I think it's safe to say that Jesus was all about community and invited men and women into it, into relationship with him, into relationship with each other. So being a Christian means that we're part of this. We're part of a group. There's no self-study discipleship plan. I mean, Jesus knew that certain dynamics of spiritual growth uh, only happen when people are together forming circles of intimacy, honesty, trust, learning, accountability, encouragement, support, a a sense of purpose. Now, look, I'm no expert on all this, but I I know this much. Community is complicated because as human beings, we are complicated. And uh, I've been a Christian a long time, and I'm still learning what healthy biblical community is about. But along the way, I've come to recognize a few basic truths that I that I think are key to spiritual uh, spiritual development, to yours and to mine. First, I've learned that community is God's idea. You know, the secular view that human existence is disconnected from any higher power and or any responsibility to anyone else other than ourselves offers a certain degree of freedom to make up your own rules and live any way you want. But there's a price for that freedom. Gone is human dignity. Gone is humanity's special connection to the author of life itself, to the creator of all that is beautiful, true, and good. Ultimately, we are free, but that autonomy is just another way of being alone. Autonomous individuals have no responsibility to others, just as others have no claim on them. There's no obligation to care for anyone other than yourself. But in the book of Genesis, at the dawn of creation, we're told that God made man to be in relationship with him. And not only that, God declared that it's not good for the man to be alone, he needs companionship, so God created woman. And that statement isn't just about marriage. It's about us all being social creatures and that our lives are meant to intersect and we're wired for relational connection. Um, And that need for connection doesn't stop when you become a Christian. If anything, spiritually speaking, it becomes more critical to our faith and development. 
And that's why the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, that's what, he's, that's what he's getting at when he writes to the church and Christians in it. He says, let us draw near to God. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging, other, uh, encouraging one another. Translation, as human beings, as followers of Jesus, we are designed for and called to, to do life together as God intended. It's his idea. In fact, Christian community is graced with Jesus' presence. In one instance, when Jesus was teaching his disciples about how to get along and deal with with the brokenness uh, and the conflict in the church and all those kind of things, he made a fascinating statement. He said, you know, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, I can't fully explain what all that means and how that works out, except to say when, when when we're with each other, as we are right now in the name of Jesus, God shows up in a unique and mysterious, supernatural way. Sometimes when, when, when the church is together in worship, there's a feeling, there's this common feeling of awe, this collective sense of, of God's presence. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why when a person is living in, in re- spiritual rebellion, what I mean by that is they're just, they're ignoring what God says is right and good and safe and healthy. Uh, when they're doing that, they tend to isolate themselves from the church. From, they, they avoid spiritual community because in a way they're trying to avoid God out of guilt. And when they do, they do it to their own detriment because they begin to drift. Which brings me to the next thing about true community. It helps prevent that drift, that spiritual drift in our lives. The book of Proverbs offers this saying about community. Walk, in, uh, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. In the Old Testament, a wise person is one who believes in and reveres God. A fool is someone who either doesn't believe in God or believes in him, but just ignores him. But whatever the case, the writer of Proverbs is saying, who you do life with makes a big difference. Do life with those who are wise, who seek to worship and honor God, and you'll grow to do the same. On the other hand, hang out all the time with those who foolishly ignore or disregard God, and you may not become a fool, but you will suffer to some degree or another. Even if you don't fully adopt their views and their values, you will be negatively impacted. It's sort of suffering by proximity. And here's the thing. You don't have to be a Christian to get this. You can be a, you can be a complete atheist and still recognize this universal truth that the people you do life with will influence the direction of your life. The Apostle Paul put it this way to the church. He said, bad company corrupts good character. And sure, choose your community carefully because the people in that community will impact uh, you one way or another. And see, Jesus establishes his church as a community of called out Followers who wisely seek to know, to worship, to honor God. He calls us into relationship with each other in order that we can support and love and encourage and challenge and learn and give and grow and serve together. And I'll tell you what, man, I'm thankful for that because honestly, without, without community, I would drift. I would. The fact is we all would. I mean, don't kid yourself. No matter how bright, how strong, how gifted, how educated, how experienced we are, no one in this room is above the need for community. No one. We're all prone to spiritual drift. But when we're together, I'm inspired to do what is right and what is good and what is healthy. Together, we're inspired to love God more, to serve. 
You know, I'm held accountable for my attitudes, my words, my behavior. Community keeps me tied to what I value most and what's important, what's most important. But here's the rub. All of this runs counter to one of the greatest myths of our time, that it's possible for a human being to do spirituality in isolation. I mean, a lot of what we hear and and see in pop culture about spirituality makes it sound purely individualistic. I mean, studies show that over the last 20 years, the fastest growing belief system in America is not Christianity, it's not Judaism, it's not Islam, it's people who say they're nothing at all and refuse to identify or commit to any community of faith. And what's fascinating is most of them aren't atheists. You know, over 90% of Americans believe in God. They believe in God. They, they simply regard themselves as spiritual free agents. They say, I can find God in a flowery meadow. I can, I can be alone. I don't have to go to church. And you know what? To a certain degree, they're right. That's true. That's true. I mean, Jesus never said anything about going to church. But he did call men and women into community. And he said, come, follow me. Let's journey together. Let's learn together. Let's pray together. Let's grow. Let's give. Let's challenge each other. Let's forgive. Let's serve alongside each other. Let's be on mission together as a close-knit team. That's community. And that's what we're called to. Apart from it, we're prone to drift Here's something else I've learned about community. It's, it's meant to be genuine. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. When God initially uh, established human community in Genesis, we're told the man and the woman were both naked and felt no shame. In case you're wondering, that statement uh, um, isn't about fashion. You know, it's, it's, it's mostly about how there, was no, there were no secrets between these two people. That's the point, that they were fully known. Everything about them was revealed. Their relationship was open. It was honest. It was sincere. It was accepting. It was loving. But when pride and rebellion entered the relational equation and, and man and woman willfully acted against what God says was right and good, suddenly there was dishonesty and there was blame and there was shame and there was hiding. And as a result, man and woman covered themselves. And the man said to God, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid, so I hid. And as human beings, we've had this tendency to hide ever since. And sometimes we in the church are the best at it. We, we hide behind fake smiles when our hearts are breaking. We hide behind external facades of wealth and success even when internally we're emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. We... Um, at times we use religious cliches to hide the fact that, that there are things happening in our world today and there are things that are happening in our lives that we just don't understand. We're confused about, we're frustrated with, but we don't let anybody know. In some cases we do whatever we can to present our best public e- image even when sin is wrecking our, our private lives. Why? Because of fear and shame. Fear and shame, we want to mask the reality of who we are and the fact that we may be struggling. And I'll admit, you know, I'll admit to you, up until the day I die, I'm going to have to deal with this because my tendency is to want to hide and to look better, stronger, smarter, nicer, more righteous than I really am. It's kind of the human deal. And what I need is not a place where I'm allowed to hide, but where I can be myself and I can tell the truth. 
I can be open, I can be real, a place where, as James puts it in the New Testament, uh, I can confess my sins. And really what he means by that is confessing not only our failures, but our struggles, everything that's going on in our lives. We can, we, can, we, can, we can share those things to others and through one another experience God's grace and forgiveness and love. I need, we need that kind of genuine community because we can only be loved to the extent that we're really known. In Acts, you know, we're told in the book of Acts in the New Testament, we're told about uh, how when Christians got together in the church in the early days, how they did so with sincere hearts. In other words, when, when followers of Jesus met together, there was no more pretending. All the masks came off. And men and women stopped hiding from, from one another, and they were just real with God. They were real with each other. And the sincerity and the genuineness of that community and the power of God working through it attracted people in droves. In droves. Uh, it wasn't always neat, clean, and comfortable because, you know, I know life can be messy. But look, if we're just coming here and we're just faking it, if we're not being real with each other, what's the point? It's just faux spirituality. It's fake. And I, you know, ain't nobody got time for that, as they say. You know what, you know what I mean? I certainly don't. Another thing I've learned about community is it's where we have the opportunity to love the way that Jesus loved. I mean, think of what he said to a small group of followers just before the crucifixion. He said to them, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciple if you love one another. A few minutes later, he said, love each other graciously, sacrificially. He followed that saying, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Jesus kept repeating himself. He tells Peter and the others that the credibility of his mission and message of love and grace rested on how the world would see them treat one another. The integrity of the gospel wasn't about them being smart, educated, rich, resourceful, or entrepreneurial. It was about them being a loving community where truth and vulnerability and forgiveness and mercy and grace and self-sacrifice was part of the group DNA. Be together. Love each other, Jesus told them. And it's, a, it's kind of amazing to me that after three years together, Jesus still at this point needed to share that command over and over and over again. Why? Because the guys hadn't mastered it yet. Their little community struggled with love in a way that answers the question that many of us have. We say, you know, well, okay, if I commit to a church, uh, if I get on a ministry team, if I join a life group, Bible study, whatever, uh, can I expect effortless, deep, rich, conflict-free, intimate community for the rest of my life? Are you kidding me? That's, no, that's not going to happen. Community is never easy because it's made up of sinfully broken, weird people like me. Author Henry Nouwen put it this way. This is great. He says, community is the place where the person I least want to be there is always there. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah? When Jesus established a small group of disciples, you tell me, did he run around finding individuals who are naturally compatible with each other? Same backgrounds, you know, they liked the same things, had similar personalities, politics, preferences. No way. He did the very opposite of that. And what that demonstrates to me, at least, is that for Jesus, community was and is about unity, not uniformity. I mean, look, because of what Matthew and Mark and John and Luke, what they wrote down on paper, the biographies they wrote, we know everyone who was in Jesus' life group. We know everyone. One guy's name was uh, Simon. He was called Simon the Zealot. 
And in first century Israel, a zealot, uh, the zealots were a nationalistic political party who, who were committed to overthrowing the Romans by any means possible. Uh, um, uh, violence, assassinations, whatever it took, it didn't matter. They hated the Romans. In fact, the only people zealots hated more than Romans were Jews who collaborated with the Romans, like tax collectors, who took money from their own people, gave some to Rome, kept the rest for themselves. They were getting rich off of Roman oppression. And the zealots were extremists, man. Some saw them as freedom fighters, others saw them as terrorists, but whatever the case, zealots didn't mess around, especially with those they felt were traitors to Israel. So get this. Here's the wild part. As Jesus forms his life group, he says, hey, Simon, you're a zealot, right? Uh, you hate the Romans and anyone who helps them. You, got, you come with me here. Matthew, you're a text collector, right? You're a Roman collaborator. You come too. You guys are really going to hit it off. You guys are going to really enjoy being together. You know, you're gonna... it's, it's like Jesus goes out of the way to mix the pot. I think sometimes in the church, we have this romanticized idea of how it all worked. You know, I hear people say, oh, we need to be like the early church. Really? You better think through that because it wasn't all, it wasn't all you may think. We romanticize it, but the fact is the disciples' lives together, it wasn't easy. Think about how Jesus went up to Peter and Andrew who were, on, were told were on the shore casting their nets out into the water. You know what that means? It means that they couldn't afford a boat. They were on the bottom rung of the fishing industry. Jesus invites them to join him. They go a little further. Jesus sees James and John who are out in a boat with their father Zebedee and Jesus invites them into community and they accept, but get this, Mark says, they leave their father in the boat with the hired men. In other words, the other employees. This was a relatively big family-owned operation. So essentially, Jesus takes two sets of brothers from different financial situations from opposite ends of the economic industry spectrum, and he puts them together. Talk about competition. Talk about envy and jealousy. I mean, when you look, up the, look at the makeup of these four guys as well as the rest of the group and their families, it was, like a, it was like an ancient soap opera waiting to happen. But it wasn't accidental. When, uh, when it came to his church, Jesus wasn't interested in uniformity, just unity. And he commands us to love each other and to work together, overcoming our differences. And so from the very beginning, Christian community wasn't easy. It's not easy today. And if you get yourself into community, you'll, you're going to figure that out pretty quick. But in the church, there are people who are, who are different from you, from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different life experiences. And being different can be difficult. In fact, if you get into a life group or on a ministry team and there's no one who's different or difficult, let me know. We'll assign somebody to you, right? Because we keep this file of difficult people who we get evenly distributed throughout the church. Just keep everybody on their toes. We don't really do that, but not a particularly bad idea. But anyway, here's the deal. Jesus didn't come to create a community of, for perfect people. Uh, who are a bunch of clones, you know, and have attended this natural chemistry and agree with each other all the time. But let's be realistic. What made Jesus' community so unique, what, what caused it to explode onto the historical scene and change the world forever was a God-given desire and a spirit-empowered determination of early Christians to humbly get along and sacrificially care for one another no matter what, no matter the differences. 
to love, to forgive, to serve like Jesus. And it's by that the world knew who these people were and were, and, and, and were attracted to them. Look, it's no secret to any of us here, Christian community is a complex deal because we're complex creatures. And so community is not easy. And I'm still learning how it works uh, myself. But here's the thing. It's, it's, it's not an option for those who follow Jesus. God calls us into a relationship with him and with others. Um, and living in the midst of a very individualistic culture, it's quite easy to lose sight of that, to lose sight of, of how crucial our connectedness, our togetherness is to spiritual growth and health, which in turn impacts the world. For any Christian to be isolated from other believers is not only depressing and debilitating, it's terminal. As Christians, you know, just as human beings, we need each other. And that's why God has given us this community, the church, his people, a family. I mean, think about the New Testament metaphor used to describe the church, the body of Christ made up of many members. With your own body, if you cut off a finger and throw it aside, it doesn't keep growing, it doesn't keep moving or playing a part. It shrivels up and dies. Likewise, as a Christian, if you're removed or disconnected from the body, it's unhealthy for you and it's crippling to the church. If and when we isolate ourselves from authentic community, we do damage to our own spiritual lives and to the cause of Christ. And that's why here at Parkview, a core value for us is, and we say it a lot, that relationships are important, and they are. You know, community... When you read the scriptures, you realize community is the necessary context for spiritual growth and health. We're putting it this way these days. We believe we are better together than apart. In his book, Simply Christian, theologian N.T. Wright explains why that's true. He describes what a vibrant Christian community can and should be like. And he says, it's a place of welcome and laughter, of healing and hope of friends and family, justice and new life. It's where the homeless drop in for a bowl of soup and the elderly stop by for a chat. It's where one group is working to help drug addicts and another campaigning for global justice. It's where you find people learning to pray, coming to faith, struggling with temptations, finding new purpose, getting in touch with a new power to carry that purpose out. It's where people bring their own small faith and discover and getting together with others to worship the one true God, the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. What is Wright saying? He's saying that Christianity isn't just about me, not just about you, it's about us, sharing and doing life together. And you know, it's sadly ironic how the word community is so popular in our culture. It's used all the time, it's talked about all the time, and yet research shows that it's rarely experienced. And a growing number of people are feeling more and more isolated and alone. That is not what Jesus intends for anybody. And most certainly not what he intends for us as people. So understand, community is critical to spiritual health and growth. And it isn't just a noun, it's a verb. It's something, it's something we, we live, it's something we do, it's something we share, it's something we celebrate, we enjoy, we experience. At least, at least that's the idea. And again, for the record, it's God's idea. It's not mine. And my hope and prayer is that we all experience it here. Let's pray. Our Father, um, the, 
the current research uh, saddens me um, to know that so many people in our nation, we who have so much, so many people feel alone and isolated, uh, feeling as if they have no one with whom they can be honest with and talk openly with about life, about trials and triumphs, victories and failures, fears, all of those things. They feel alone. And uh, I believe there's some even within the context of the church who have the same feeling. The fact is you have created all of us uh, for connection. We are social beings by nature. We need others. And most certainly we in the church need one another um, for our own health and welfare and for the well health and welfare uh, of the body of Christ. We need each other. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would do what's necessary to connect. We would, whether it's opening our homes to others, whether it's opening our lives to others, whether it's serving, whatever it takes, I pray that we would get rid of the masks, uh, that we would get rid of the pretense, the judgmentalism and all of that and we would just be real with each other because when we're real and we're honest, then we can move forward together and we can experience forgiveness, we can experience your grace, your goodness, your power in our lives. Um, Faux spirituality, the fakeness is not helping anyone, certainly not helping the church, certainly not making a difference in the world. I pray that we would be the kind of community that as the world looks at us and sees our, our love for you, our love for one another demonstrated that they would be drawn to it and they would be drawn to us. Most importantly, they'd be drawn to you, the God who loves them and who has given Jesus to them. And so uh, this morning, Lord, as we think through those things, we commit ourselves to you and to each other. And today as we end, we're gonna stand together as one unified community, one family, and sing to you, our God, who we love. Empower us, Lord. May we have a great, awesome sense of your presence as we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Lord, I pray that your hand of grace and peace and love uh, would rest on your people, the church, your family, uh, this place, your community. And may we live our lives in such a way um, loving you, loving each other in such a way that um, our world is drawn to you and to Jesus. And so uh, may that be true, certainly in our lives as we move forward into the future. Uh, we love you this morning and uh, we offer ourselves to you individually and collectively. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you tonight.